Welcome to TalkCast and to what is the final instalment of Knowledge and Ignorance, part six of my readings from and reflections upon On the Sources of Knowledge and of Ignorance, a lecture by Karl Popper. It is a lecture in 17 parts and we are now at part 13. As we get towards Popper's conclusion, he begins to rapid fire summarize what has gone before. And this culminates in a succinct answer to the questions. Where does knowledge come from? Where does ignorance come from? And hopefully I remember in saying in promoting this particular episode that if you're going to listen to none of the other episodes, one through five of this series, listen to part six because it contains so much of Popper's actual position. As he will say at the beginning of part 13, which is where we're up to today, and we're going to get to the end of part 17, what he says at the beginning is that he's taken a historical view, but he's going to leave that behind. And he's going to show you the progress that he's making. He's already dealt with the mistakes that people have made, the errors of the past, and showing that he can move forward. He can take things further when it comes to what this stuff called knowledge is, and why it is that if we're able to come to some understanding of the world, our understanding is still incomplete. Hence, we have ignorance. He's given some account already of why it is the empiricists thought the way they did, and the rationalists thought as they did. So I'm about ready to dive in, but before I do, a little piece of rare housekeeping. If you've been watching this series on YouTube, you might notice a little error in part five, the last podcast I made on this particular lecture. And that error was that if you get all the way through it, I think few people do, in the final minute, the audio is missing. So if that's a problem for you, just go to the podcast version of this on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or Spotify or wherever you happen to get your podcast, and the full thing is there. So you can get that last 50-second minute, I think, of my podcast there, rather than me having to upload a whole new one. As I say, we're at part 14. This really is a tour de force from Popper. Popper kind of sums up his entire epistemology here. He traverses science as always, history qua history, you know, the subject of history itself, as well as the history of philosophy, the history of ideas. And his political philosophy, he summarizes as well. It gets a mention. It's all tied up and summarized here with breathtaking clarity. Uh, this is really me celebrating Popper. I am going to comment as we go through, but it's more like, have you heard of those viewing parties that people people get together online and they watch the same movie or the same TV show? This is kind of what this is, okay? I'm not going to be adding my own insights here so much as reading through Popper and just sort of clapping along at just how wonderful he is in expressing these ideas for the first time in a way which I still find wonderfully clear today. So here we are at part 13, and let me begin. Popper writes here, quote, I will now leave all these largely historical reflections aside and turn to the problems themselves and to their solution. This part of my lecture might be described as an attack on empiricism, as formulated, for example, in the following classical statement of Hume's. And here Popper quotes Hume. And Hume says, quote, If I ask you why you believe any particular matter of fact, you must tell me some reason. And this reason will be some other fact connected with it. But as you cannot proceed after this manner in infinitum, you must at last terminate in some fact which is present to your memory or senses, or must allow that your belief is entirely without foundation. 
End quote from the Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, Section 5, Part 1. Then Popper goes on to say, quote, The problem of the validity of empiricism may be roughly put as follows. Is observation the ultimate source of our knowledge of nature? And if not, what are the sources of knowledge? These questions remain whatever I may have said about Bacon, and even if I should have managed to make those parts of his philosophy on which I have commented somewhat unattractive for Baconians and for other empiricists, the problem of the source of our knowledge has recently been restated as follows. If we make an assertion, we must justify it, but this means that we must be able to answer the following questions. How do you know? What are the sources of your assertion? This, the empiricist holds, amounts in its turn to the question, what observations or memories of observations underlie your assertion? I find this string of questions quite unsatisfactory. First of all, most of our assertions are not based on observations, but upon all kinds of other sources. I read it in the Times, or perhaps I read it in the Encyclopedia Britannica is a more likely and more definite answer to the question, how do you know? Then, I have observed it, or I know it from an observation I made last year, end quote. We wonder what Popper would say today. I mean, his, his point has only been made more profound by the existence of the so-called information age, the existence of the internet. So, I read it in the Times, or I read it in the Encyclopedia Britannica, has of course been replaced with, I read it on Wikipedia, <laughs> I read it via Google, maybe ChatGPT told me. Whatever the case, the empiricist is going to say, ah, but those terminate somewhere, somewhere in observations ultimately. Those sources relied on other sources and perhaps other sources that finally do end at some point. But do they? Now, Wittgenstein also said we get to a point where our spade is turned. At some point, we get to a fact of the matter and we can't ask any further questions. So he too endorsed the it terminates somewhere idea as well. But if you embrace it's a woven web of guesses, there's no termination. There may be a beginning, a genesis of sorts with the knowledge, but the genesis itself can be a problem. We can ask of it why. It's not a termination. It could itself be a beginning point for more questions and more knowledge, more exploration, more conjecturing of knowledge and testing the knowledge, as Popper will come to soon. As Popper himself goes on to say, quote, But, the empiricist will reply, how do you think that the Times or the Encyclopedia Britannica got their information? Surely, if you only carry out on your inquiry long enough, you will end up with reports of the observations of eyewitnesses, sometimes called protocol sentences, or by yourself, basic statements. Admittedly, the empiricist will continue, books are largely made from other books. Admittedly, a historian, for example, will work from documents. But ultimately, in the last analysis, these other books or documents must have been based upon observations. Otherwise, they would have to be described as poetry or invention or lies, but not as testimony. It is in this sense that we empiricists assert that observation must be the ultimate source of our knowledge. Here we have the empiricist's case, as it is still put by some of my positivist friends. End quote. Uh, he says positivist there. What does he mean? What is Popper talking about with positivism? Uh, the positivists were those who were against Popper in thinking that knowledge was conjectural, but, and rather that knowledge, in fact, was only about 
those statements, those statements were only validly called knowledge or deserving of the title of knowledge insofar as they could be verified as true by science or proven by the methods of mathematics as being true. These were the only things that had genuine meaning. Okay, and so this comes out obviously from Wittgenstein's philosophy. Popper goes on to say, quote, I shall try to show that this case is as little valid as Bacon's, that the answer to the question of the sources of knowledge goes against the empiricist, and finally, that this whole question of ultimate sources, sources to which one may appeal as one might to a higher court or a higher authority, must be rejected, as based upon a mistake. First, I want to show that if you actually went on questioning the times and its correspondence about the sources of their knowledge, you would in fact never arrive at all those observations by eyewitnesses in the existence of which the empiricist believes. You would find, rather, that with every step you take, the need for further steps increases in snowball-like fashion. Take as an example the sort of assertion for which reasonable people might simply accept as the sufficient answer, I read it in the Times. Let us say the assertion, the Prime Minister has decided to return to London several days ahead of schedule. Now, assume for a moment somebody doubts this assertion, or feels the need to investigate its truth. What shall he do? If he has a friend in the Prime Minister's office, the simplest and most direct way would be to ring him up. And if this friend corroborates the message, then that is that. In other words, the investigator will, if possible, try to check or to examine the asserted fact itself, rather than trace the source of the information. But according to the empiricist theory, the assertion, I have read it in the Times, is merely a first step in a justification procedure consisting in tracing the ultimate source. What is the next step? Just pausing there in my reflection. So notice here Popper setting up the great contradiction, or the way in which these two views of knowledge are at loggerheads. On the one hand, the empiricist is saying, well, you've got to find the ultimate source of the knowledge to determine whether or not it's valid, or to say that it's knowledge in some way, to say whether or not it counts as having solved your problem, we might say in Popper's view. But Popper's just saying, all you reasonably do when presented with an assertion is to check it, check it against something else that's reasonable in the world. Maybe there's a person in the Prime Minister's office in this case who can check for you. You can check with them. You know, is this true? Is the Prime Minister actually coming back to Britain three days ahead of schedule? Something like that. But if someone comes to you, you know, random, you know, you, you're having a random conversation with a friend and you say, isn't it unusual the Prime Minister is coming back three days ahead of schedule from his overseas trip? then what do you do in that case? Do you say, well, what's the ultimate source of that knowledge? You can say, no, well, if you're sceptical about what your friend said, you say, how do you know that? Well, I read it in the Times. Ah, that's it. Fine. Problem done. Now you know you have a piece of knowledge that the Prime Minister is coming home three days ahead of schedule. And you know that the other person also knows that. And why? You know it because your friend has told you that it was reported in the Times. You have a piece of knowledge. Does it mean that this piece of knowledge is certainly true? No, it does not mean that. But this is the mistake the empiricists make. They want to turn knowledge into a quest for certain truth, which is wrong. What you want is that piece of information that solves your problem. It could always be wrong. It can be, you are fallible. All sources are fallible. That is what Popper is saying here, that the empiricists are not after checking sources. They're trying to find the ultimate source. As Popper has asked, what is the next step? He goes on to say, quote, There are at least two next steps. One would be to reflect that I have read it in the Times is also an assertion and that we might ask, what is the source of your knowledge that you read it in the Times and not say in a paper looking very similar to the Times? 
The other is to ask the times for the sources of its knowledge. The answer to the first question may be, but we have only the times on order, and we always get it in the morning, which gives rise to a host of further questions about sources which we will not pursue. The second question may elicit from the editor of the Times the answer, we had a telephone call from the Prime Minister's office. Now, according to the empiricist procedure, we should, at this next stage, ask, who is the gentleman who received the telephone call? And then get his observation report. But we should also have to ask the gentleman, what is the source of your knowledge that the voice you heard came from an official in the Prime Minister's office? And so on. End quote. So my reflection on this, you can see here that the empiricist error is a sceptical one. It's almost the denial of the possibility of knowledge. You just keep asking, but how do you know that? Given an answer, you ask, but how do you know that? And given an answer, you ask, but how do you know that? And eventually you get to this base observation. Now, why the empiricist is satisfied with someone saying, I just saw it or I just heard it myself firsthand and not thinking that, well, that could be an error is the topic of this. The whole idea being that senses can lead you in error. But of course, the empiricists, the empiricists at this point thought that the senses did not lie. There was no problem. It was a, you could have direct perception and your senses did not deceive you unless your mind was corrupted by the evil demons or bad ideas in some way, shape or form. Popper goes on to say, quote, There is a simple reason why this tedious sequence of questions never comes to a satisfactory conclusion. It is this, every witness must always make ample use in his report of his knowledge of persons, places, things, linguistic usages, social conventions, and so on. He cannot rely merely upon his eyes or ears, especially if his report is to be of use in justifying any assertion worth justifying. But this fact must, of course, always raise new questions as to the sources of those elements of his knowledge which are not immediately observational, end quote. What Popper is saying there is theory-ladenness. We've got knowledge, we've got other background knowledge here, knowledge of persons, places, things, linguistic uses, social conventions, and so on, which when you're given a report of something like the Prime Minister is coming home from his trip three days early, you already have all of that knowledge. And that, so that knowledge itself is not cashed out by a particular observation, but allows you to understand the message that you're being given, allows you to understand the knowledge as being knowledge. And without it, without understanding language, without understanding uh, particular people and particular places, having this concept that some people are reliable interlocutors, you can't make a judgment about whether or not this assertion that you've heard from someone is in fact itself reliable. There are reasons to be more or less critical in certain places. This background knowledge comes together as a kind of theory about what you think about the assertion, the theory-ladenness of the, the assertion that you're being given. And the theory-ladenness, therefore, of any observation that another person has made, as well as yourself. Popper goes on to say, quote, This is why the program of tracing back all knowledge to its ultimate source in observation is logically impossible to carry through. It leads to an infinite regress. The doctrine that the truth is manifest cuts off the regress. This is interesting because it may help to explain the attractiveness of that doctrine. I wish to mention in parentheses that this argument is closely related to another, that all observation involves interpretation in the light of our theoretical knowledge, or that pure observational knowledge unadulterated by theory would, if at all possible, be utterly barren and futile. The most striking thing about the observationalist program of asking for sources, apart from its tediousness, is its stark violation of common sense. 
For if we are doubtful about an assertion, then the normal procedure is to test it rather than to ask for its sources. And if we find independent corroboration, then we shall often accept the assertion without bothering at all about sources, end quote. Perfect. Perfect. And this is why many of us have said that Popper's conception of knowledge is so much closer to the common sense understanding of knowledge than the academic, more erudite versions of knowledge that are so rarefied as to be completely disconnected from what people actually mean by saying they know something or have a piece of knowledge. When you are told something and you're skeptical about it, you go and check it. And once you've checked it and it is corroborated by some other source, then you tend to say, I know it. Now, not in all cases, okay? There are such things as in the modern age, we talk about misinformation, disinformation. But this is the whole point of having knowledge in the first place, of having good background knowledge, of trying to figure out how it is that you can come to a better understanding of certain sources, which comes down to having an explanation yourself of whether or not what they're giving you is a good explanation. And whether or not they're giving you a good explanation comes down to what is the method and methodology being used that they've used in order to come to that conclusion. If it is a newspaper reporting on the movements of the Prime Minister and you figure out that the methodology is that the reporter has contacted someone in the Prime Minister's office, good method. There's no reason to presume that people are being lied to here. Now, could it be the case that someone's being lied to? Of course it could be. But until such time as you think that that is the better explanation for what is being told, there's no reason to endorse it. You may as well take prima facie what people in the Prime Minister's office are saying about what the Prime Minister is doing. For example, if, on the other hand, someone is trying to tell you, well, I think that aliens from the other side of the galaxy are actually the explanation for the existence of the Egyptian pyramids, that's different. What is their methodology for having figured this out? If it is merely their interpretation, their personal interpretation of certain hieroglyphics, not good enough. Not good enough when it stands in stark contrast to what all the genuine Egyptologists have been telling us about how these pyramids, these boring structures, these piles of stones, were built by vast numbers of people, ruled over by a pharaoh, okay, and it presumably took decades to centuries to build in some cases. We ourselves need heuristics which allow us to check the knowledge that people are purporting to have. And those heuristics come down to what is the methodology? What is the method of error correction that is being used by those particular people? We don't care about the ultimate source of the knowledge. Often the ultimate source of the knowledge, in a sense, will be them, themselves. They're making stuff up. But what is the methodology that they used? Is that reliable? Is that going to produce a good explanation? Or is that going to produce utter fiction? Back to Popper's lecture. And he says, quote, of course, there are cases in which the situation is different. Testing an historical assertion always means going back to sources, but not as a rule to the reports of eyewitnesses. Clearly, no historian will accept the evidence of documents uncritically. There are problems of genuineness. There are problems of bias. There are, of course, also problems such as, was the writer present when these events happened? But this is not one of the characteristic problems of the historian. He may worry about the reliability of a report, but he will rarely worry about whether or not the writer of the document was an eyewitness of the event in question, even assuming that this event was of the nature of an observable event. A letter saying, I changed my mind yesterday on this question, may be most valuable historical evidence, even though changes of mind are unobservable, and even though we may conjecture 
in view of other evidence that the writer was lying, end quote. It's, and so this also reveals the richness and depth of Popper's epistemology, that it can reach into all areas of our understanding of the world, from art and mathematics through to history, as well as science. But the empiricists and others are narrowly, very, very narrowly at times, focused on their perverse view of science. They ignore everything else. They ignore the knowledge that is instantiated in all other subject areas, much less knowledge instantiated in objects, but never mind that. But when it comes to history, there is no way of being able to check the ultimate source, of being able to check whether or not the person who is writing the historical documents actually witnessed the so-called event that they witnessed. So if this is impossible, this is an impossible state of affairs, does that mean we cannot possibly have knowledge of history? No, we have knowledge of history. Not because we know that the people writing whatever they wrote actually saw what it is that they purport to have seen. Perhaps they didn't. Perhaps they're just collecting other documents and we don't have access to the documents that they were looking at, the more ancient documents who have long since been lost. You know, the Library of Alexandria was lost. So we rely upon documents that purport to be relying upon documents that have long since been lost, much less the people who wrote those documents who might have been writing about other people who said they saw a particular thing. Now, recently, this whole question of lost civilizations, these these apparent cities and city-states and so on and so forth, for which we have scant archaeological evidence. But sometimes in the writings of certain philosophers, these descriptions appear. Now, why? Because the philosophers might have been reading books long since lost. And the only record we have that these books kind of existed is in the writings of the philosophers. You know, Plato writing stuff about Atlantis and that kind of thing. But there are, there are other such examples. Now, what do we say about any of that? What we say is we just don't know. We don't know until we find better sources. But in the meantime, where we do have good explanations of phenomena, which connect in, in history especially to physical artefacts as well, then we, have, we can have a good explanation of these things. But the empiricist, the empiricist is, has a real problem on their hands because they are only concerned about the cases for knowledge where you can terminate in an actual observation and you know the observation has taken place and the observation is inerrant in some way. But if you don't even in principle have access to the observation because all you have to rely upon is a historic document testifying that someone might have testified to having made the observation, big problem for the empiricist, but not for Popperian epistemology, for having a reasonable explanation of some phenomena or events in the past. Popper goes on to say, you know, this whole this, this, this unusual focus on eyewitnesses, of needing eyewitnesses because you need to have sense data. Popper says, quote, As to eyewitnesses, they are important almost exclusively in a court of law where they can be cross-examined. As most lawyers know, eyewitnesses often err. This has been experimentally investigated with the most striking results. Witnesses most anxious to describe an event as it happened are liable to make scores of mistakes, especially if some exciting things happen in a hurry. And if an event suggests some tempting interpretation, then this interpretation, more often than not, is allowed to distort what has actually been seen. End quote. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Now, this is one of the areas where, if I can just mention the science populariser Neil deGrasse Tyson, he comes under fire now and again for making some 
philosophically naive statements. Okay, that aside, I find his description of parts of the scientific process eloquent and accurate. For example, his talk whenever he, you know, when he talks about UFOs, I think that this is when he is absolutely in his prime, and you can see he really enjoys talking about this stuff, and he's perfectly right, as far as I can tell. If someone comes into the science laboratory and says, I saw a UFO, you have to believe me, I saw it in the sky, the scientist, the critical thinker at that point will say, who cares? <laughs> you saw it. This, this I saw it thing is merely a problem. It's the starting point. It's not the solution. It's not an answer. You don't therefore conclude on the basis of someone having seen something, someone having claimed to have observed something, therefore they really did. David Deutsch makes this point in one of the questions that I ask him in my series of questions to David Deutsch about this exact phenomena, this idea that making observations is hard. Scientists devise intricate, complex experiments and trying to figure out what they're actually observing is half the problem to try and figure out what it is that your data is telling you about what you've observed. And Popper is saying here, eyewitnesses, notoriously unreliable. What the judge needs to do in deciding a case based upon often competing eyewitness testimonies is to figure out an explanation as to why people have come up with the ideas that they have, the theories of their own observations, which can be mistaken. Yes, there are optical illusions. Yes, there are errors that people make. Yes, there are even well-known physical phenomena like parallax error. You know, you're, you're, the angle from which you're viewing something can drastically alter the position that you think it's in. These are all problems for observation, which mean that eyewitness testimony is, is known to be unreliable. It's known to not be a way of cashing out our best explanations. What's the point of observation? Well, as Popper has taught us, the point of observations, carefully made, is to decide between theories already guessed. Not to generate theories, not to generate truth, Popper goes on to say. Quote, Hume's view of historical knowledge was different. We believe, he writes in the treatise, that Caesar was killed in the Senate House on the Ides of March because this fact is established on the unanimous testimony of historians who agree to assign this precise time and place to that event. Here are certain characters and letters present, either to our memory or senses, which characters we likewise remember to have been used as the signs of certain ideas. And these ideas were either in the minds of such as were immediately present at that action and received the ideas directly from its existence, or they were derived from the testimony of others, and that again from another testimony, till we arrive at those who were eyewitnesses and spectators of the event, end quote from Hume. And Popper explains, quote, It seems to me that this view must lead to the infinite regress described above. For the problem is, of course, whether the unanimous testimony of historians is to be accepted, or whether it is, perhaps, to be rejected as the result of their reliance on a common yet spurious source. The appeal to letters present to our memory or our senses cannot have any bearing on this or on any other relevant problem of historiography, end quote. And that's the end of part 13. So we've had a discussion there of history and of the purpose of eyewitnesses and whether or not observation, observation itself, can be the terminus for understanding whether or not something counts as knowledge or not. And it can't be. It plainly can't be because we can't always be there. 
to figure out whether or not something is truly seen. And even if we are there to say this is what we're seeing, as he has explained perfectly well there, eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable. They can contradict one another to begin with, and our senses are just unreliable, despite what the empiricists say, despite what the positivists want to say. So here we are at part 14, and Popper begins in a powerful way by asking us, quote, but what then are the sources of our knowledge? The answer, I think, is this. There are all kinds of sources of our knowledge, but none has authority. We may say that the Times can be a source of knowledge or the Encyclopedia Britannica. We may say that certain papers in the Physical Review about a problem in physics have more authority and are more of the character of a source than an article about the same problem in the Times or the Encyclopedia. But it would be quite wrong to say that the source of the article in the Physical Review must have been wholly or even partly observation. The source may well be the discovery of an inconsistency in another paper, or say the discovery of the fact that a hypothesis proposed in another paper could be tested by such and such an experiment. All these non-observational discoveries are sources in the sense that they add to our knowledge. I do not, of course, deny that an experiment may also add to our knowledge, and in a most important manner. But it is not a source in any ultimate sense. It always has to be checked, as in the example of the news in the Times. We do not, as a rule, question the eyewitness of an experiment. But if we doubt the result, we may repeat the experiment or ask somebody else to repeat it. End quote. Perfect. Okay, it's common sense stuff, right? But the empiricist needs to be reminded of this, apparently. You know, it's not that someone performs an experiment and observes it themselves that cashes out that, therefore, the experiment is absolutely true. It's that the experiment can possibly be tested by anyone else to check to see whether or not the results being claimed are, in fact, true. And this is what happens in science all the time. It's the reason for the existence of journals, amongst other things, so that somebody can read what you've done and then check to see what you've done. And, of course, at its best, we actually find out often about errors, people making Honest experimental errors are in the case of like cold fusion, making dishonest experimental errors. Okay, In that case, they weren't even published in a journal, so far as I know. This is the, the Pons and Fleischmann debacle, or scandal as it sometimes is called. The idea that they were able to observe fusion at, a, at room temperature going on. False, but they... It was published in the media before it got published in a journal somewhere. And then when, you know, the questions began to mount, of course, it turned out that they'd made an error. Or at least, at the very least, they'd made an error. Possibly they'd lied. The point is, in science, it needs to be repeatable. The whole idea that science is about regularities in nature, a one-off, a one-off thing, can't be part of science. That's not to say that the one-off thing never happened, or never did happen, but by definition, we can't go about repeating it. And we, we won't have a good explanation of that thing. It's just going to remain a mystery. And according to you know our best theory of physics, you will get these one-off, rare, weird coincidences that don't represent regularities in nature. They can be put down to, insofar as they are an honest thing that people have actually seen, this weird transgression of what is otherwise the regularities in nature, these one-off events... Okay, which also includes things like the first bit of knowledge that's produced in, in any case. You know, lots of lots of one-off things happen routinely all the time. But you know, I'm talking about the, the genuine one-off thing where someone reports having seen the, the 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 thing flying through the sky. You know, the, the proverbial you know pigs flying across the sky. Why is it not part of science, even if 
even if it was a genuine observation? Well, because it's consistent with what we know the laws of physics to be, but it's not a regularity of nature. These things could possibly happen, an extremely unlikely coincidence. More than likely, the best explanation in those situations is someone has hallucinated. Now, must that be the explanation? No, it mustn't be. It doesn't have to be. In all likelihood, it is, because this is a better explanation that something has happened inside of your own brain to cause you to hallucinate to see the flying pig. But the flying pig might have arisen as due to quantum laws of physics, okay? Highly unlikely. In science, we need to be able to check. We need to check whether or not this is a genuine regularity in nature. One-off events are not like that. Popper goes on to say, quote, The fundamental mistake made by the philosophical theory of the ultimate sources of our knowledge is that it does not distinguish clearly enough between questions of origin and questions of validity. Admittedly, in the case of historiography, these two questions may sometimes coincide. The question of the validity of an historical assertion may be testable only, or mainly, in the light of the origin of certain sources. But in general, the two questions are different, and in general we do not test the validity of an assertion or information by tracing its sources or its origin, but we test it much more directly by a critical examination of what has been asserted of the asserted facts themselves. End quote. And I'm just ending the quoting there just so I can preface the next little passage with pay attention here. This is a powerful distillation of Popper's position on empiricism. Given what he has just said about the whole point of knowing something comes down to whether or not we can test its validity in some way, shape or form. We need to be able to test it, not find the final observation. He says in concluding this part, quote, Thus, the empiricist's questions, how do you know, what is the source of your assertion, are wrongly put. They are not formulated in an inexact or slovenly manner, but they are entirely misconceived. They are questions that beg for an authoritarian answer. End quote. Brilliant. The how do you know question, as the empiricist asks it, is asking for the ultimate source of your knowledge, the authoritative starting point, namely the idea that someone saw it, that someone heard it, that they were present as an eyewitness to be able to cash out the validity of that thing, all the while assuming, all the while assuming that the senses can't possibly err. But we've already seen that the senses absolutely can err in many ways. People are fallible. And it's because people are fallible that the empiricists cannot possibly be correct. People can make mistakes, always. You can always be labouring under some misconception. And thereby we arrive at part 15. And Popper goes on to say, quote, The traditional systems of epistemology may be said to result from yes answers or no answers to questions about the sources of knowledge. They never challenge these questions or dispute their legitimacy. The questions are taken as perfectly natural and nobody seems to see any harm in them. This is quite interesting, for these questions are clearly authoritarian in spirit. They can be compared with that traditional question of political theory, who should rule, which begs for an authoritarian answer such as the best, or the wisest, or the people, or the majority. It suggests, incidentally, that silly alternatives such as whom do you want as rulers, the capitalists or the workers, analogous to what is the ultimate source of knowledge, the intellect or the senses. This political question is wrongly put, and the answers which it elicits are paradoxical, 
as I have tried to show in Chapter 7 of my Open Society. It should be replaced by a completely different question, such as, how can we organise our political institutions so that bad or incompetent rulers, whom we should not try to get, but whom we so easily might get all the same, cannot do much damage? End quote. Now, this is a subtly different formulation to the way I normally put Popper's criterion of democracy. The normal way of putting this, the regular way I should say, the more common way that you see it in print is, how can we most easily remove bad rulers and bad policies without force, without violence? That's the way it's put. The way Popper is phrasing it here is, how can we organise our political institutions so that bad or incompetent rulers cannot do much damage or cannot do too much damage? That's a great way of putting it. I love that. It's very anti-authoritarian there. It's very much in the mould here of Churchill's injunction that, well, democracy is the worst of all forms of governance, except for all those other forms that we've tried. Here Popper is saying, look, you know, we, we need a democracy. We've got a democracy. It's the only way we can organise society right now, given that people are going to be unreasonable at times. So we're going to have to have rulers to sort of corral society in some way. But the fundamental question before us is, how can we, how can we ensure that they don't do too much damage? <laughs> Which is great. That's perfect. Because as he says... <laughs> you're going to get the bad and incompetent rulers all the same. <laughs> he says, you might get them all the same. More often than not, you're going to get bad and incompetent rulers. More often than not. Now, it's either have the bad and incompetent ruler or no ruler at all. All right. So <laughs> that seems to be the choice before us. It's, it's impossible to have the best ruler. It's impossible even to have, I would say, the good ruler. There's simply by virtue of the fact that Anyone who is seeking that office is probably not the person you want. Okay, I say probably, but the, the characteristics of a person who are uh, that kind of individual who says, yes, I'm going to tell others what to do, more often than not, has the wrong philosophy, has the wrong philosophy. They endorse a kind of coercion. They think, I know best for others. So automatically, at the first hurdle, you know, people like me rule them out, so to speak, as, as of being of good character as of being the best character. Now, there are some people in politics who you would want to have more power because you can tell when you listen to them that they're not going to exercise it in some bad way, but eventually, you know, power corrupts and all that sort of stuff. So the whole point of democracy is how can we get rid of these people once they begin to reveal themselves as not being in it for the right reasons, but instead in it for themselves or in it for social control or in it for trying to impose their will upon others, be coercive in some way. What do we do? Well, we need to be able to get rid of them so before they do too much damage. <laughs> having a voting system, having a system where we can vote them out without violence. And so Popper says, you know, Popper is saying there that the question is not who should rule. The question is how do you organise your political institutions? And he goes on to say, I believe that only by changing our question in this way can we hope to proceed towards a reasonable theory of political institutions. The question about the sources of our knowledge can be replaced in a similar way. It has always been asked in the spirit of, what are the best sources of our knowledge, the most reliable ones, those which will not lead us into error and those which we can and must turn, in case of doubt, as the last court of appeal? I propose to assume instead that no such ideal sources exist, no more than ideal rulers, and that all sources are liable to lead us into error at times. And I propose to replace, therefore, the question of the sources of our knowledge by the entirely different question. 
How can we hope to detect and eliminate error? End quote. There you go. That, that's the genius in full flight there, the genius of Popper. Coming down on the side of, we're not going to find the ultimate authoritative source. What we can hope for is to detect and eliminate error. A wonderfully digital, computational, modern view of epistemology. Okay? This ability to error correct is what we're after. And if you have an ultimate source of knowledge, if the truth is manifest, then you don't have any hope of correcting the error because you don't believe that there is an error in that thing that you've observed because it's the absolute truth. There's no hope of making progress beyond that thing. This is the optimistic philosophy, optimistic in David Deutsch's sense. Okay? Problems are soluble and evils are just due to a lack of knowledge. We can correct those evils. We can correct the mistakes and the errors. Popper goes on to say, quote, The question of the sources of our knowledge, like so many authoritarian questions, is a genetic one. It asks for the origin of our knowledge in the belief that knowledge may legitimize itself by its pedigree, end quote. That, that's brilliant just there, my reflection on this. This is saying, what is your source is simply pushing the quest for explanation back a step without really answering the substantive claim about whether or not something is an explanation or a valid piece of knowledge and so on. It's simply saying, my source is X. And then we quibble not about the substance of what is said, but rather about whether X is going to be a reliable authority on the matter or not, which is an entirely different and pointless question. The, pe the so-called pedigree of the knowledge. You know? <laughs> We're going back to like holy texts and so on and so forth. That the, a strong pedigree, a, a purebred piece of knowledge, so to speak. We can trace it all the way back to the, the Old Testament or something like that. Or we can trace it back to, I got it from my senses. I saw the thing. Popper continues with this metaphor. He says, <laughs> quote, The nobility of the racially pure knowledge, the untainted knowledge, the knowledge which derives from the highest authority, if possible, from God. These are the, often unconscious, metaphysical ideas behind the question. My modified question, how can we hope to detect error, may be said to derive from the view that such pure, untainted and certain sources do not exist and that questions of origin or purity should not be confounded with questions of validity or of truth, end quote. Wonderful. Today, these modern versions of empiricist induction-type knowledge, Bayesianism in other words, and modern views of rationality, not Popper's view, other views of rationality, they're all about the quest for final truth, or at least probable truth. They're not about correcting error. It's not about detecting error. It's about trying to find the source which can increase your credence, for example, in the truth of certain statements. They're not interested so much, or when you take serious, they are, okay, but the people, are often, people are always interested in good explanations. That's what they really want. The Bayesians are actually, a person who self-identifies as a Bayesian isn't primarily interested in predictions as a, as a matter of their personal life, even if they're a scientist or something else like that, except in the rarefied case of theoretical physics, okay, that's an exception to the rule. But in all other cases, people are genuinely after explanations. They just don't realise that Popper is already captured, and, and David Deutsch has captured, what it means to generate a good explanation. It's not merely about prediction, but the Bayesians are confused on this point. They think there is this, <laughs> as Popper says there, some kind of nobility of the racially pure knowledge, the untainted knowledge, the knowledge which derives from the highest authority. 
They might not say God, but they'll say from the evidence or from the science, something like that, okay? That has a strong pedigree in terms of observational data. That's what they want. They want to be able to say, well, my knowledge is absolutely valid, or my knowledge has a very high credence, 98% confidence in this particular piece of knowledge. Why? Because we have multiple lines of evidence coming together, and we've gathered all of this evidence, so we have very high confidence that this thing is true, or probably true in some way. We're not talking about the elimination of error. We're talking about the accumulation of supposed truth and then measuring the truth in some way, shape, or form, quantifying it. It's the wrong, it's coming at it from the wrong angle. Better we say we have an explanation. We don't think it's the final explanation. It is an explanation that corrects errors in previous explanations, but it itself will contain some errors which we might not know what they are yet, but we expect them to arise eventually. And when they do, that will be a problem. We'll correct those errors then by solving the problem, coming up with a yet better explanation. It's all about detecting errors and correcting them. This very view, this very view of correcting errors, of not confusing this with questions of validity or truth, Popper goes on to say, quote, this view may be said to be as old as Xenophanes. Xenophanes knew that our knowledge is guesswork, opinion, doxa, rather than episteme, as shown by his verses. And now we go on to, Popper's going on to quote Xenophanes. There's a long tradition of this now. Uh, David Deutsch has quoted Xenophanes in the beginning of infinity, same passage, and I will quote it here again now. The wonderful quote is, quote, The gods did not reveal from the beginning all things to us, but in the course of time, through seeking, men find that which is the better. But as for certain truth, no man has known it, nor will he know it, neither of the gods, nor yet of all the things of which I speak. And even if by chance he were to utter the final truth, he would himself not know it, for all is but a woven web of guesses. End quote from Xenophanes. Popper goes on to say, quote, Yet the traditional question of the authoritative sources of knowledge is repeated even today, and very often by the positivists and by other philosophers who believe themselves to be in revolt against authority. The proper answer to my question, how can we hope to detect and eliminate error, is, I believe, by criticising the theories or guesses of others. And if we can train ourselves to do so, by criticising our own theories or guesses, the latter point is highly desirable, but not indispensable, for if we fail to criticise our own theories, there may be others to do it for us. This answer sums up a position which I propose to call critical rationalism. It is a view, an attitude, and a tradition which we owe to the Greeks. It is very different from the rationalism or intellectualism of Descartes and his school, and very different even from the epistemology of Kant. Yet, in the field of ethics of moral knowledge, it was approached by Kant with his principle of autonomy. This principle expresses his realisation that we must not accept the command of an authority, however exalted, as the basis of ethics. For whenever we are faced with a command by an authority, it is for us to judge, critically, whether it is moral or immoral to obey. The authority may have power to enforce its commands, and we may be powerless to resist but if we have the physical power of choice, then the ultimate responsibility remains with us. It is our own critical decision whether to obey a command, whether to submit to an authority. Kant boldly carried this idea into the field of religion. Quote, In whatever way, he writes, the deity should be made known to you, and even if he should reveal himself to you, it is you who must judge whether you are permitted to believe in him and to worship him 
end quote from Kant. In view of this bold statement, it seems strange that Kant did not adopt the same attitude, that of critical examination of the critical search for error in the field of science. I feel certain that it was only his acceptance of the authority of Newton's cosmology, a result of its almost unbelievable success in passing the most severe tests, which prevented Kant from doing so. End quote. That, that's marvellous. So, in other words, Popper is giving Kant quite an amount of credit here in saying, well, basically, he got critical rationalism, except for the fact that Newton's theories of physics were so wonderfully successful, so perfectly precise at the time, okay, at the time of Kant, they, they, they were able to predict everything within their domain to perfect accuracy. No one could find a flaw with them. And because of that inerrant ability, that, that, that we, no one could find a problem with them, he thought, as almost everyone did at the time, well, this is the final theory of physics. We have the truth about physical laws because no one could find an error. So if only he had have known that it wasn't the final theory of physics, there could be no final theory of physics, then Kant have might, might have been able to go the whole way and apply this anti-authoritarian critical idea even to science. But he, he lacked the imagination, apparently, to do so. Some lack the imagination even today. Popper goes on to say, quote, If this interpretation of Kant is correct, then the critical rationalism, and also the critical empiricism, which I advocate, merely puts the finishing touch to Kant's own critical philosophy. And this was made possible by Einstein, who taught us that Newton's theory may well be mistaken in spite of its overwhelming success. End quote. And of course, the lesson there is, even Einstein's theory we should expect to be flawed in ways analogous to the ways in which Newton's theory was found to be flawed. Eventually, in the final analysis, one day when we begin to find more and more problems with relativity or with aspects of quantum theory and so on, we should expect these theories to be overturned, subsumed into some deeper theory, which, which explains what they got right and why and the ways in which they're wrong and how to correct the errors that they made. Let's go on. Popper continues to say, quote, so my answer to the questions, how do you know? What is the source or the basis of your assertion? What observations have led you to it? Would be, I do not know. My assertion was merely a guess. Never mind the source or the sources from which it may spring. There are many possible sources and I may not be aware of half of them. And origins or pedigrees have in any case little bearing upon truth. But if you are interested in the problem which I tried to solve by my tentative assertion, you may help me by criticising it as severely as you can. And if you can design some experimental test which you think might refute my assertion, I shall gladly, and to the best of my powers, help you refute it. End quote. Yes, and so that is the ideal stance for a scientist to have, or a historian, so on and so forth, that they would say, you know, here is my idea, here is my hypothesis, here is my assertion, here is my explanation, purported theory, and so on and so forth. Criticise it for me. Help me to shoot it down. And if you've got some way of doing an experiment, let's hear it and let's try and find flaw with this particular idea. Let's find a new problem, perhaps, so we can make even more progress. Popper goes on to say, quote, This answer applies, strictly speaking, only if the question is asked about some scientific assertion as distinct from an historical one. If my conjecture was an historical one, sources, in the non-ultimate sense, will of course come into the critical discussion of its validity. Yet fundamentally, my answer will be the same as we have seen. And that ends part 15. We're now on to part 16. 
And here in this part 16, we're going to get a potted summary from Popper himself about his epistemology as explained so far throughout this particular piece. Popper says in part 16, quote, It is high time now, I think, to formulate the epistemological results of this discussion. I'll put them in the form of nine theses, end quote. Now, at this point, I'm just noticing that uh, in my version of this, I don't know if this is every version, but certainly the Kindle version, um, <laughs> the problem I have is that the numbering system for these nine theses is a bit out of whack. Uh, but I'll do my best in trying to number these one through to nine. We'll see how we go. The first thesis that Popper has here written is, quote, number one, there are no ultimate sources of knowledge. Every source, every suggestion is welcome. And every source, every suggestion is open to critical examination. Except in history, we usually examine the facts themselves rather than the sources of our information. Thesis two, the proper epistemological question is not one about sources. Rather, we ask whether the assertion made is true. That is to say, whether it agrees with the facts. That we may operate without getting involved in antimonies with the idea of objective truth in the sense of correspondence to the facts has been shown by the work of Alfred Tarski. And we try to find this out as well as we can by examining or testing the assertion itself, either in a direct way or by examining or testing its consequences. Thesis 3. In connection with this examination, all kinds of arguments may be relevant. A typical procedure is to examine whether our theories are consistent with our observations, but we may also examine, for example, whether our historical sources are mutually and internally consistent. Thesis 4. Quantitatively and qualitatively, by far the most important source of our knowledge, apart from inborn knowledge, is tradition. Most things we know we have learned by example, by being told, by reading books, by learning how to criticise, how to take and to accept criticism, how to respect truth. The fact that most of the traditional sources of our knowledge are traditional condemns anti-traditionalism as futile. But this fact must not be held to support a traditionalist attitude. Every bit of our traditional knowledge and even our inborn knowledge is open to critical examination and may be overthrown. Nevertheless, without tradition, knowledge would be impossible." End quote. So that thesis is brilliantly put and I think needs to be perhaps more often put more strenuously by me. I try to make this point very, very often, this idea that we have inborn knowledge and the idea that there is knowledge in our traditions. I say it often, but it's as if, <laughs> it's as if people don't hear that. There's a lot of things that people don't hear when you explain Popper. Okay, For example, you know, when you're explaining the, 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 the criterion of demarcation, of course, they hear what I've traditionally heard is if you can't test it as a matter of practice now, then it's not falsifiable. But it's not about that. It's about in principle, can you test it? And that Popper didn't think that science was just about experimentally testable results. It's about explanations of physical phenomena. That's what science is really about. You know, conjectural knowledge of physical reality. People don't hear that. They hear falsification. What can you do? And when I try and apply some of these ideas to modern conceptions of things like AGI, let's say, or the supposed gradations in intelligence between people. And we talk about David Deutsch's modern conception of the universal explainer as being the genuine criteria for what a person is, and so therefore making 
claims that people have differences in inherent IQ, the inherent ability to understand things, as being false, that somehow this means we endorse a version of tabula rasa, you know, that the idea that we have a blank slate. We don't. We endorse Popper's idea that there are inborn ideas, that we have these ideas that we're born with. But, but, importantly, all ideas are a form of knowledge. Knowledge is conjectural. Our ideas can be changed. Even if you have an inborn idea of some sort, you can change your mind. It's the whole idea of this phrase, changing your mind. And if you have traditional knowledge, it doesn't mean that just because the traditional knowledge is traditional that it needs to be defended at all costs, nor does it mean it needs to be overturned simply by the fact that it's traditional knowledge. It means it is knowledge. It's our best explanation at the moment. We need to rely upon it to solve our problems until someone comes along with an objectively better idea. Uh, people don't hear that. <laughs> people don't hear these particular things. Now, I think we're up to thesis five. <laughs> so thesis five says, quote, Knowledge cannot start from nothing, from a tabula rasa, nor yet from observation. The advance of knowledge consists mainly in the modification of earlier knowledge. Although we may sometimes, for example in archaeology, advance through a chance observation, the significance of the discovery will usually depend upon its power to modify our earlier theories. Thesis 6. Pessimistic and optimistic epistemologies are about equally mistaken. The pessimistic cave story of Plato is the true one and not his optimistic story of Amenesis, even though we should admit that all men, like all animals and even all plants, possess inborn knowledge. End quote. If you're interested in what this Amenesis is, this is from episodes one and two of this particular series on, on the sources of knowledge and of ignorance. In short, Amenesis is the fact that we all have the knowledge of ultimate reality, but we've forgotten it. And Plato's view is that we're just trying to rediscover that which our immortal souls actually already know. Our bodies are this corrupted version of the immortal soul, of the ultimate form that we have. And so coming to know things is a process of coming to remember <laughs> what it is that we've forgotten. Incorrect. But what Plato had right from the cave is that we don't have direct access to reality. Okay, it's layered with interpretation. It's like we are looking at shadows on a cave wall. You got that much right. Thinking that this therefore prevents us from ever knowing anything, of ever having actual knowledge of reality, is false. We come to knowledge of reality, but it's just that the knowledge isn't absolutely certainly true. It's not final. We can refine it over time and improve it over time. But it's still knowledge of reality. It's just not reality itself. Perfect uh, truth about reality. So we're continuing here with Thesis 6, and Popper goes on to say, quote, But although the world of appearances is indeed a world of mere shadows on the walls of our cave, we all constantly reach out beyond it. And although, as Democritus said, the truth is hidden in the deep, we can probe into the deep. There is no criterion of truth at our disposal, and this fact supports pessimism. But we do possess criteria which, if we are lucky, may allow us to recognize error and falsity. Clarity and distinctness are not criteria of truth, but such things as obscurity or confusion may indicate error. Similarly, coherence cannot establish truth, but incoherence and inconsistency do establish falsehood. And when they are recognized, our own errors provide the dim red lights which help us in our groping our way out of the darkness of our cave. End quote. And I believe we're at thesis seven now, Popper writes. Neither observation nor reason are authorities. Intellectual intuition and imagination are most important, but they are not reliable. They may show us things very clearly, and yet they may mislead us. 
They are indispensable as the main sources of our theories, but most of our theories are false anyway. The most important function of observation and reasoning, and even of intuition and imagination, is to help us in the critical examination of those bold conjectures, which are the means by which we probe into the unknown, end quote. Wonderful. Popper's epistemology includes this. It includes intuition, intellectual intuition, and imagination. And he says that they're most important, but simultaneously not reliable. These are ways in which we can concoct our theories and ways in which we can find errors in our theories. They're indispensable to the project of production of the production of knowledge. It's just they're not reliable. We have to use our critical means in order to figure out whether or not what is being purported by our imagination or our intuition is actually correct in some way. Or can we find errors within it? Thesis 8, I believe. <laughs> Papa goes on to say, quote, Every solution of a problem raises new, unsolved problems. The more so, the deeper the original problem and the bolder its solution. The more we learn about the world and the deeper our learning, the more conscious, specific and articulate will be our knowledge of what we do not know, our knowledge of our ignorance. For this indeed is the main source of our ignorance. The fact that our knowledge can be only finite, while our ignorance must necessarily be infinite. End quote. Well then, isn't that brilliant? So there you have, there's the answer. On the sources of our knowledge and our ignorance, what's the source of our ignorance? The fact that our knowledge can be only finite, while our ignorance must necessarily be infinite. It's the finiteness of our knowledge, so therefore the source of our ignorance is everything else beyond that which we know. That's our ignorance. It's a, the universe, the reality is the source of our ignorance. And I believe this is Thesis 9. And this echoes uh, things that uh, David Deutsch has said about, you know, should you feel small in contemplating the universe? You know, and he compares it to cows. Should you feel small in contemplating a cow? No, a cow is just a stupid animal. <laughs> You're a human being who can think. Popper says on this, quote, We may get a glimpse of the vastness of our ignorance when we contemplate the vastness of the heavens, though the mere size of the universe is not the deepest cause of our ignorance. It is one of its causes. Quote, where I seem to differ from some of my friends, F.P. Ramsey wrote in a charming passage of his Foundations of Mathematics, is in attaching little importance to physical size. I don't feel in the least humble before the vastness of the heavens. The stars may be large, but they cannot think or love. And these are qualities which impress me far more than size does. I take no credit for weighing nearly 17 stone. <laughs> End quote. Popper goes on to say, I suspect that Ramsey's friends would have agreed with him about the insignificance of sheer physical size, and I suspect if they felt humble before the vastness of the heavens, this was because they saw in it a symbol of their ignorance. End quote. I'm coming rapidly to the end of part 16 here. Indeed, we only have one paragraph left before we get to the conclusion, the conclusion of the entire lecture, which is part 17. But here, in this final paragraph, we get to hear Popper quote one of his almost famous aphorisms. And so let me just read that in this final paragraph of part 16. He says, quote, I believe that it would be worth trying to learn something about the world, even if in trying to do so, we should merely learn that we do not know much. This state of learned ignorance might be a help in many of our troubles. It might be well for all of us to remember that, while differing widely in the various little bits we know, in our infinite ignorance, we are all equal, end quote. Wonderful. So this is an appeal for the equality of all people, 
the equality of all men, of all people, of all humans everywhere, of all thinking beings, that while differing in the little bits and pieces that we do know, it's the infinite ignorance of everything else that makes us quite equal. And so we are just solving problems in different domains. Yet another reason why I say, <laughs> continue to make this point, that there aren't differences genuinely in IQ. People have different interests. It would be a very boring world if everyone wanted to be a pure mathematician and a theoretical physicist, the two areas which are usually associated with having high IQ. But we don't want that as people. What we want is people trying to solve problems in every single domain, every domain, artistic, political, introspection, physics, chemistry, making films, making new programs, new versions of chat GPT. People have different interests in different areas. Now, if you are absolutely fascinated by trying to create ever better sculptures of pigeons, no one's ever going to say, you're a genius. You've got the highest IQ in the world. They won't be interested in trying to test you to see how high your IQ is. And yet, it might be really high, and you've never had your IQ tested. But because of your particular interest, you're counted out as being one of the, the smart people because of your interest. Your interest is in pottery or sculpting or some art artistic endeavor. And this is unfortunate, but this is the way that psychology has taught us to be. Uh, and yet everyone's ignorant. Everyone's infinitely ignorant about everything, <laughs> everything. All we differ in are in the little bits and pieces that we do know. So let us turn now to the conclusion, part 17 of On the Sources of Knowledge and of Our Ignorance. And Popper writes, quote, There is a last question I wish to raise. If only we look for it, we can often find a true idea worthy of being preserved in a philosophical theory which must be rejected as false. Can we find an idea like this one in one of the theories of the ultimate sources of our knowledge? I believe we can. And I suggest that it is one of the two main ideas which underlie the doctrine that the source of all our knowledge is supernatural. The first of these ideas is false, I believe, while the second is true. The first, the false idea, is that we must justify our knowledge or our theories by positive reasons, that is, by reasons capable of establishing them, or at least of making them highly probable. At any rate, by better reasons than that they have so far withstood criticism. This idea implies, as I suggested, that we must appeal to some ultimate or authoritative source of true knowledge which still leaves open the character of that authority, whether it is human, like observation or reason, or superhuman, and therefore supernatural. The second idea, whose vital importance has been stressed by Russell, is that no man's authority can establish truth by decree, that we should submit to truth, that truth is above human authority. Taken together, these two ideas almost immediately yield the conclusion that the sources from which our knowledge derives must be superhuman, a conclusion which tends to encourage self-righteousness and the use of force against those who refuse to see the divine truth. Some who reject this conclusion do not, unhappily, reject the first idea, the belief in the existence of ultimate sources of knowledge. Instead, they reject the second idea, the thesis that truth is above human authority. They thereby endanger the idea of the objectivity of knowledge and of common standards of criticism or rationality. End quote. Wonderful. So this is the idea that truth is out there in reality. It's there in the world. It's there to be discovered, but we can't quite get there, but we know that it exists and it is objective. There's a truth of the matter about any particular thing, and it is beyond humans. 
It is beyond our ability to see with our eyes, hear with our ears, use our reason to actually get to. What we have are explanations of the truth, but that the truth exists is an objective fact about reality. And once you bring this superhuman phenomena, quality of reality, namely that there is a truth, there is a truth, and we can come to know it, know it in the Papirian sense, know it fallibly, know it through our explanations. Once you take that away from reality and put it within the minds of people, then, as Popper says, it tends to encourage self-righteousness and the use of force against those who refuse to see the divine truth. Now, it doesn't mean that these people necessarily believe in divine truth in the sense of God in some way. In fact, there are certain philosophies. Take objectivism. Objectivism is one such that endorses the idea that truth can be understood by human beings. But it takes, and it, but simultaneously says that there is no supernatural way of validating this stuff, that, that, that God does not exist and so forth. But people can get hold of the truth. And so once they have hold of the truth, then yeah, they become self-righteous. They become willing to label others okay, as of, uh, of, not, <laughs> of not the right quality, so to speak, uh, of being bad people versus good people and so on and so forth because they have possession of the truth. Where does the truth come from? From their senses because they endorse a version of empiricism. But as Popper says, truth is above human authority. No person can say they're in possession of the truth because a person is fallible. A person is fallible and is always fallible. So let me just recap and go on. Okay, so what I just read was, quote, Taken together, these two ideas almost immediately yield the conclusion that the sources from which our knowledge derives must be superhuman, a conclusion which tends to encourage self-righteousness and the use of force against those who refuse to see the divine truth. Some who rightly reject this conclusion do not unhappily reject the first idea, the belief in the existence of ultimate sources of knowledge. Instead, they reject the second idea, the thesis that truth is above human authority. They thereby endanger the idea of the objectivity of knowledge and of common standards of criticism or rationality. Because they're saying that certain people subjectively can be in possession of the truth. They have it because they know they have it, okay? It becomes part of subjective knowledge. You think you've got the certain truth, and so therefore you're willing to go out there and be self-righteous. But this takes truth away from, and it takes knowledge away from being objective, out there in the world, able to be tested and criticised. Because if you've got the final truth, how could you possibly criticise the final truth? It is the final truth. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no point criticising it. So Popper goes on to say, quote, What we should do, I suggest, is to give up the idea of ultimate sources of knowledge and admit that all knowledge is human. That is, mixed with our errors, our prejudices, our dreams and our hopes, and that all we can do is grope for truth even though it is beyond our reach. We may admit that our groping is often inspired, but we must be on our guard against the belief, however deeply felt, that our inspiration carries any authority, divine or otherwise. If we thus admit that there is no authority beyond the reach of criticism to be found within the whole province of our knowledge, however far it may have penetrated into the unknown, then we can retain, without any danger, the idea that truth is beyond human authority, and we must retain it. For without this idea... There can be no objective standards of inquiry, no criticism of our conjectures, no groping for the unknown, no quest for knowledge, end quote. 
end of the piece, end of the lecture here. And isn't that a wonderful way to end things? This orbiting of the idea that the doctrine that the truth is manifest is the source of all tyranny. We have to admit the truth exists. It's out there. It's something we can come to know, know in the Papurian sense, have explanations of the truth and be able to say, this thing is false. We have found an error in this thing. Okay, in this claim about reality, we have found that it is not the truth. No one can possess the truth. No person. Because once they do, they become the authority. Or once you say that your senses are able to give you the truth, then they become the authority. Replacing the Bible or the priest or the king or whoever the authority is with your senses isn't an improvement, really. Well, okay, so it is. <laughs> Replacing the traditional authorities of the Bible the priest, the king, whoever, with your senses is an incremental improvement. It says that, well, you can come to know things yourself. But taken seriously, it's just replacing one authority with another. We can do away with all authorities, Popper is saying. Because anyone who claims to possess the authority then tends to become self-righteous, then tends to become the kind of person willing to deploy force against others who are not in possession of the truth. So saying that your senses give you truth is a problem. So we have to get away from that. The senses give you information. The information might be incorrect. It might be misconceived. But it could lead you towards knowledge, knowledge that is not final, knowledge that is conjectural, knowledge that is good explanation, that allows you to make progress. So this ends my series on, on the sources of knowledge and of ignorance by Karl Popper. One for, I imagine, the diehard epistemologists out there. And I hope you'll agree that this was a tour de force of Popper's epistemology, indeed his entire philosophy to some extent, summarised here in, these, in this particular podcast anyway, in these last few sections of his lecture. And I think we can see here in this particular lecture that Popper writes as clearly as any other philosopher when it comes to this kind of thing for the time, in answering his critics and answering his other contemporaries as well. We've gone from the history of these ideas through to today. And I think we can see it's still applicable now that the same mistakes are being made, people thinking that they have access to the truth, that, we, that following the evidence, that the science has some kind of authority. All of these authorities in some way, shape or form warp what knowledge production is really about it's really about making incremental progress, detecting and correcting our errors as time goes on. Until next time on TopCast. Bye-bye.